Jack walked into our next session with a look on his face. I could tell that he was feeling something. I couldn't quite make out what it was. He seemed excited and maybe even a little upset. He definitely seemed emotionally activated. He told me that he had been thinking a lot about emotions after our last session. He had also been reading up on emotions. He had had some interesting dreams. He wanted to talk some more about emotions. He had a number of questions and he said he wanted to challenge me on some of the things I had told him. He told me he had an epiphany about happiness that he would like to share with me. I am Dr. Rajiv Parinja. Welcome back to Brain Politics. In this episode, we continue to discuss emotions. We will revisit and clarify some of the issues from our previous episode. We take up emotions that have a positive balance towards the end of the session. But let's begin with Jack and one of his dreams. In his dream, Jack is taking a walk in the woods and he encounters a monkey. He has seen this monkey before. He recalls that the monkey had been hungry. The monkey had seen a banana but had frozen when he had seen a second monkey. This had led to our discussion of emotions in our last episode. But now Jack sees that there is a whole group of monkeys. They seem to be quite active and are doing whatever it is that monkeys do. And then Jack realizes that he is on a spaceship. The spaceship is the entire Earth going around the sun at tremendous speed. Jack has an idea. He calls out to Central Command at Houston. Houston, this is Jack, he said. Jack, this is Houston. What can we do for you? replies Houston. I was watching the monkeys, Jack said. You still have a monkey problem? asked Houston. Oh no, it's not really a problem, but I was just very interested in the monkeys, said Jack. Oh, we can tell, said Houston. I was wondering if you could send me the code for the monkey emotions. I would like to play around with it and see if I can tweak it a little, said Jack. Sure, said Houston. If you have nothing better to do with your time on a spaceship, you can have it. And then Jack told me what he did. He said, I didn't like the idea of monkeys having negative emotions, especially anxiety. It's not good to have anxiety. They are living in their natural habitat. Why should they be anxious? So I turned their anxiety down to zero, he said. You can do that? I asked. Doc, it's a dream. Anything can happen, he replied. Of course, it's a dream. I laughed. So in his dream, Jack sets up this experiment. He told me that he randomly divided monkeys into two groups. One group continued to have their normal anxiety level and the other had no anxiety. 
he thought that the no anxiety group would have a better quality of life. It didn't quite work that way. The monkeys in the no anxiety group seemed to be getting injured a lot more. They were getting eaten by predators more. They were making longer jumps than they could safely do and they were falling more. And Jack realized it was a bad idea to reduce their anxiety like that. He saw that anxiety was serving a purpose. It was keeping the monkeys from doing certain things that were dangerous for them. So Jack set up another experiment. This time, he left some monkeys with the normal level of anxiety, but for others, he turned it up. He thought that the higher anxiety levels would keep them safer. However, the high anxiety group did not do well. They seemed to be exploring less. They were too cautious. They were also dying a little younger from all the stress they were experiencing. It occurred to Jack that the baseline anxiety for the monkey population was probably optimal. But he was not done experimenting. There was another thing that bothered him about the monkeys. He did not like the idea that monkeys were vying for the high status. He did not like how they were dominant or submissive in their behavior. He thought that all the monkeys should be equal. So he tweaked their behavior and emotions to remove status, which led to the dominant and submissive behavior. However, that did not go well either. The monkeys seemed to be getting into a lot more fights, resulting in more injuries and their population was dwindling. Jack felt a little frustrated. It seemed that the monkeys were optimized in whatever it was that they were doing. Jack just wanted the monkeys to be happy and he felt that he was missing something when he woke up, feeling a little perplexed. There was one vital question that he believed had not been asked. It was on his mind and he knew that the answer to that question would change the way we approach happiness and well-being. In our session, Jack said, I tried all kinds of things. I remembered how we had talked about emotions having a feeling component and a tendency to act in a particular way. They are also very powerful when it comes to focusing our attention and they make us appraise things in a particular way which is in keeping with the emotion. I thought that I could optimize those emotions but it seems that they are already exactly where they should be. That's right, I told him. The evolutionary process is constantly optimizing different traits in any population by allowing the individuals who are a better fit for the environment to do a little better. They leave more children behind. If the people with higher anxiety did better, they would thrive, have more children, and the population would become more anxious over many generations. If the people with lower anxiety did better, they would thrive, have more children, and the population would become less anxious over many generations. 
unless there has been a significant environmental change in a short span of time, the population will be pretty close to optimum for any trait that you study. When people think of evolution, they often think of the phrase, survival of the fittest. This is a little misleading. It doesn't mean that the fittest survive and the others die. It just means that individuals who are better adapted survive a little better and they leave behind more children and that advantage can amplify over many generations and spread through most of the population. Sometimes there are opposing traits which offer their own individual advantages and the population can have an optimum distribution of these traits. If you're interested in learning more about that, I would recommend the book A Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. But what about status? Jack asked. I don't like the idea of status. I don't like how everybody is trying to show off their status. I don't like status too, I replied. It annoys me when people are trying to say things to assert their status by describing their wealth, their position at work, or other things that make them wonderful. But that is the design. Status is nature's way of minimizing conflict. We automatically appraise the status of people around us. We tend not to go into conflict with people of a higher status than us. We also don't tolerate a challenge from people of a lower status than us. Your status is your pre-test probability of winning in a conflict. If you ever had a lawsuit, a good lawyer will tell you your chances of winning or losing a case and advise you not to go into litigation where you are very likely to lose. Nature does something like that too. We are able to assess status very quickly and intuitively. We remember it and we avoid challenging people of a higher status. A rise in status is rewarding. We like it and we want it. We find it pleasurable. A fall in status is unpleasant and can provoke anxiety, anger and even depression. Jack said, so I understand that a monkey population living in a jungle in a stable environment probably has optimal levels of emotional response. But humans are so different. I have a lot of anxiety. I know some people who seem to not have any. Some people I know are just running angry all the time. What is it that makes some people have so much more negative emotions compared to others? When you talk about emotions as a kind of lens through which we view the world, I can see that emotions affect how we appraise things, how we feel, how we remember things, and how we think about the future. It's a kind of lens that changes our worldview. What makes us tend to have the kind of lens that we have? That is a very interesting question, I said. It is also difficult to answer but it has attracted the interest of philosophers and scientists over the millennia. I'll tell you what I know about it.
You may have heard about nature and nurture. Nature is the kind of genes that you have which are inherited and nurture is the kind of environment in which you are living and in which you were raised. These two determine the kind of mental and physical health you are going to have. Now this model is right but it doesn't quite capture the complexity of what goes into making us who we are. I will start with some very new research because it is intriguing and demonstrates how we are still finding new things. This research is still controversial and I don't think it is considered settled science. Some years ago, researchers published a study in the journal Nature in which they showed that if daddy mice were made to be fearful of the smell of cherry, their children were prone to be fearful of the smell of cherry but not to other smells even when the children had never actually interacted or met the daddy mice. Something was happening in the way that genes were switched on and off in the sperm that were forming at the time that the daddy mice were experiencing that fear. That allowed that information to be passed on to the next generation. This is a relatively new field of study called epigenetics. It is not just the genes that we inherit, but the way they are switched on or off that also contributes to the kind of traits we will have. This has not yet been shown in humans in the same way, but I suspect that as we continue the research, we will see the role of epigenetics in shaping the kind of brain that we end up having. The second stage is after conception. If the mother experiences severe stress during pregnancy, this can affect the brain and possibly make the people more prone to mental health problems. The third stage is immediately after birth. Our brains start responding to the kind of upbringing we have. Early childhood is a crucial time for brain development. It is hard to imagine that the first few months and years of a child's life are that important, but studies show that they are. When parents are consistent and reliable in responding to their children emotionally as well as meeting their physical needs, the children form a kind of attachment called secure attachment. This can be really helpful in making us better adjusted young people and adults. There are other types of attachment that can set children up for mental health problems down the road. Having trauma and abuse during childhood can change our brains in a way that makes us more prone to mental health problems. There may not be severe traumatic events in the lives of some people, but they have had harsh, overly critical, cold, emotionally distant or abrasive parenting. This can lead to low self-esteem, self-loathing, negative self-talk, and increase the risk of mental health problems. I cannot tell you the number of times I've heard a patient say to me, nothing I did was ever good enough for my mom, my dad, my stepdad, or my grandma. And that kind of thing can have a lifelong impact on mental health. School bullying can have a similar effect. On the other hand, 
parenting that is kind, warm, responsive, reliable, and consistent helps us grow up to be relatively resilient. Now, this parenting style does not imply having poor discipline. I want to emphasize that warm and loving parenting is not inconsistent with good discipline. Good discipline is an important and vital component of good parenting. Good discipline involves setting clear and reasonable expectations, which are communicated clearly with love and warmth. Good discipline is a collaborative process with the child. The child should be allowed to question and negotiate the rules and boundaries. But the child should understand that the parents have the responsibility to set out the rules and boundaries and those boundaries have to be respected and followed. It is almost as if the evolutionary process has equipped us with the ability to tweak the kind of lens we will put on depending on the experience we have had. You can see how this might be adaptive. If an individual is living in high stress, it makes sense to equip this individual with quick, strong emotional responses to deal with the situation that may arise. We experience more negative emotions when going through stress. Early life stress can permanently imbue us with a tendency to experience negative emotions. Of course, life events can change our emotional state as well. It can take a while to recover from a breakup, from a job loss or a bereavement. Minor setbacks will also affect our mental state, but they will not last as long. With good mental health, we are able to bounce back from most negative emotional states. But when they tend to persist and get in the way of our day-to-day -day functioning, when they affect our quality of life, that is suggestive of mental health problems and should be an indication for the need to seek help. Jack found this quite interesting. It is very hard for people to change even when they don't want to, I told him. It is pretty much impossible for people to change when they don't want to. Our formative years are vital and as a society, we must invest in every way possible to protect our children from avoidable emotional trauma. Jack said, you know, all the talk about emotions got me thinking. We can have an emotion with a negative balance for almost every situation, and that makes us act in ways that we need to. I was thinking about the monkeys in my dream. In theory, we can produce a negative emotional state and give the monkeys relief from that state only when they do what they need to do. Could you explain that a little bit more, I asked him. So imagine that nature made the monkeys quite miserable. They would only get relief from misery if they ate a banana. And all the time that they are miserable, they are just wanting the banana and thinking about a banana. I think that design would work, he said. I suppose it would, I told him. And then Jack asked me an unexpected question. Have you ever been asked by your patients why they are not happy, he said. Well, I replied, 
It is not a common question that I get asked. Most people are asking more specific questions about their particular situations. But I have heard it put in the way that you said. I think that is the wrong question, said Jack. Tell me more, I asked him. Well, if we can evolve a negative emotion that deals with pretty much any situation that we find ourselves in, what is the point of happiness? The monkeys are not always miserable. Humans are not always miserable. Nature could have made us that way, but it didn't. That is brilliant, I told him. If we can understand how and why happiness evolved as an emotion, we would have a much better understanding of happiness, he said. I told him about a researcher called Barbara Fredrickson, who is now a professor of psychology at the University of North Carolina. She asked and answered this question. She calls it the broaden and build theory. Positive emotions such as happiness can change our narrow focus that may come from a negative emotion to a more broader focus that allows us to look at things which may not be immediate and pressing issues. It allows us to build skills and relationships. This building of skills and social connections allows us to prepare for a future where we might encounter unknown situations. Happiness is a word in English and is not a scientific concept with a single definition. It can mean different things to different people. You could say you are happy when you are having a good meal, when you have a child, or when you have a team that you support that wins the World Series. The feeling is positive in all the cases, but it may not exactly be the same. Some experts differentiate happiness and excitement. But just for the sake of discussion, if we accept the narrow definition of happiness, where happiness is when you're feeling the need and the urge to build more connections and have a broad focus, we can get some ideas about where happiness lies. Do you remember the time when you had new neighbors move in a few years ago? I asked Jack. Jack replied that he did. One day, when Jack came home, he was feeling stressed and upset about things at work. His wife came up to him and told him that she had seen new people move in next door and asked him if they should go and say hi. But Jack was in no mood to meet new people. He was in no mood to build new connections. He was unhappy that day. The following day, Jack had been watching oil prices and he had expected a big movement. He had made some bets and in the evening he came back and saw that his bets were successful. He had made several hundred dollars. He was excited and he was focused on the oil prices. He was looking closely at his computer when his wife came up to him and asked him if he wanted to go and meet the new neighbors. New neighbors? We won't even be living in this neighborhood if I could continue to make the kind of money I made today. Again, he was not willing to broaden and build, even though 
He wasn't really unhappy, but he was narrowly focused on a large reward that he wanted to replicate. On the third day, Jack came home from work. He was not feeling any negative emotions. It was just an average day. And when his wife asked him if he wanted to go and meet the neighbors, he agreed. He wanted to broaden and build. And by our definition, he was happy that day. Happiness is tricky because pursuing happiness aggressively can narrow our focus and take us out of that sweet spot where we want to broaden and build. Jack agreed with this, but he wanted to move on. There are a number of things I want to clarify from our last session, he said. You had told me that you cannot really prevent an emotion from arising. I disagree with that, he said. He told me that when his daughter was about two years old, she used to watch a television program about animals. One day, the program was about snakes. She was scared seeing the moving snakes on the screen. She looked away and held on to him. He had reassured her and turned the television off. As far as he knew, she had never encountered a snake in her real life until that point. She had never even seen a video of snakes before. He felt that this was an instinctive automatic response. Some years later, he had taken her to the zoo. He was worried about her being scared of snakes, but he had explained to her that all the creatures were in safe enclosures and were not going to harm her. She had understood this and was quite excited. She had seen all kinds of animals, including snakes, without being scared. He didn't think that the emotion of fear had arisen in her after seeing the snakes and that she had somehow managed it. She just hadn't felt scared to begin with. The emotion of fear had not arisen. I agreed with him. When we anticipate a particular event, we can attenuate or even remove the negative emotional response associated with it. Going to a zoo is a very peculiar example of this. I can admire large predators without feeling any fear and get pretty close to them. The same predators would be incredibly scary in their natural environment. If you think about things like public speaking, it can be incredibly scary in the beginning, but with a bit of practice, it can become enjoyable and much less scary. Preparation and practice can indeed change how we respond emotionally to things. His next question was about validating emotions. Jack said, You know, when you told me that we should validate emotions, I had just agreed with you without really understanding what you mean. When I think about validating, I think about tickets that you have to put in a machine to validate them. I once went to Italy where every train ticket had to be validated before you get on the train. What does it really mean to validate an emotion? That is another great question, I told him. To validate an emotion is to recognize it, acknowledge it appropriately, and not dismiss it, or blame the person 
for having the emotion. It also means managing your own emotional response to it, which may make you want to attack the person who is having the negative emotion. It can mean exploring the cause of the emotion gently and positively. You want to avoid implying that there is something wrong with the person for feeling what they are feeling. We have discussed how this is illogical in the last session. And then Jack asked me, Have you heard of Lisa Feldman Barrett? I certainly have, I replied. She's probably the most influential researcher in emotions for the last several years. I think some of her research may contradict many things that you're saying, said Jack. I think you may be right about that. Could you summarize her research findings for me? Jack asked me. I could not, I told him. She is a prolific researcher who has spent her entire career on emotions research. Perhaps we can ask her to come on the show if we become big enough. I can tell you some of the points she makes. She says that emotions are difficult to categorize in the way that we have done. There isn't really an inner part of the brain that makes us angry, sad, or anxious. Emotional expressions and the words we use for them have a cultural component and may not transfer across to other cultures. She also says that emotions are not found in any specific part of the brain. The brain produces emotions to predict the situations that we may find ourselves in based on our previous experience, and it prepares us to respond to them. What is your opinion of her research? He asked me. That is a tricky question to answer, I told him, but I want to make two points. It is very easy to form an opinion. In fact, I believe this may be the brain's default option. It is difficult to form a well-informed opinion. I do not believe I am qualified to have a well-informed opinion on her research because I am not her peer. I find her work very interesting and I believe it moves us further in our understanding of emotions. Jack paused. He seemed to think for a moment. It's unlike you to pass up an opportunity to give an opinion. You made four points just about me wanting to eat ice cream every day, he said. I laughed. It is tempting and fun to give opinions. I could give you an opinion about almost anything you ask me without actually knowing very much about it. Ask me about a conflict or a war somewhere in the world and what I think about it and I will say something. In most cases, I know so little that I could double my knowledge about the issue by reading for five minutes on Wikipedia. Jack agreed with that. People form opinions without knowing much about issues. He recalled a discussion that he had with his daughter Becky when she was in seventh grade. She had been learning about the solar system. There were a number of facts that she had learned about which she found a little hard to believe. Her teacher had given an estimate of the temperature on the surface of the sun and the core of the sun. They had said that Venus has an atmosphere which is acidic. They had said that Jupiter was a gas planet. How can they know all these things, she had asked. Did they put a thermometer inside the sun? She wondered if people were just making stuff up. Jack did not want to discourage her from asking questions. 
He strongly believed that being able to ask questions was the basis of a well-functioning, open democratic society. But he also felt that the scientists would not have made all this stuff up. I agreed with him. I have no special knowledge of astrophysics. I probably last learned about it in high school. But people spend years studying these subjects and publish in journals which are reviewed by their peers. If something makes it into a high school science course, that is usually a well-established fact. Scientists can't just make stuff up and have it stick like that. But the process of science is not a democratic one. It doesn't matter how many people believed for centuries that the sun revolves around the earth. It was still the earth revolving around the sun. I think it is right that the people who publish these findings have it reviewed by people with expertise in that area. That is the process of science. Jack had discouraged his daughter from dismissing the facts that she was being taught at school simply because she could not imagine how they were discovered without direct observation. I think that is the right approach, I told him. It is hard for a seventh grader to understand how somebody with many years of training may have come to establish a fact like Jupiter is a planet made of gas. She should be welcome to look into it and find the process that led to that conclusion. She should have the opportunity to become a researcher and publish her findings in a peer-reviewed journal if she should so desire. But none of us live long enough to be experts in more than two or three areas. Such is the breadth of human knowledge in today's day and age. As scientists push the frontiers of our knowledge, it becomes more and more complex, and it is hard for people not trained in that particular area of science to understand what's going on. I learned biochemistry in medical school at a basic level. But when I read a paper that was recently published by one of my friends, I could barely make sense of it. I am not really qualified to understand its relevance, its reliability, or to comment on it. In the same way, I am a psychiatrist, but I may not be qualified to appraise the work of somebody who is a full-time researcher on emotions. Jack thought this was an interesting discussion. We have been all over the place today, he said. We have. I agreed. What are the key messages that you want me to take home from this discussion? Well, let me see if I can keep it within three messages. Number one would be, if our mental health is normal, we still feel negative emotions and they serve a purpose. We don't want to make huge changes to the emotions we feel because they're already quite close to optimum. Two, normally negative emotions tend to decay over time. If negative emotions persist, that may be a sign of mental health problems and that is the time to seek help. I think the third one would be that the most important time in a person's life is their childhood. If they receive good parenting, which is kind, warm, consistent, reliable, predictable, that can set them up for a future where they have good emotional regulations, fewer negative emotions, and good mental health. I would like to keep going with a few more. My fourth point would be that happiness exists to allow us to broaden and build. 
We can work to improve happiness, but aggressive pursuit of happiness narrows our focus and takes us away from happiness, which is the ability to broaden and build. And if I could have a fifth one, that would be that the science of emotions continues to evolve and there are disagreements between experts. I am not an expert on emotions research, but I have tried to share my understanding of it. We are not fully done with emotions yet. We will revisit positive and negative emotions and look at ways to manage them to get the best life experience that we can. But I think it is time to move on from emotions for our next session. We will take self-regulation and meet the king of the realm. The king is relatively new in evolutionary terms. You can think of the king as this young and smart character who must run the realm which is also inhabited by characters such as the duke who are older, more powerful and can shut the king out when they are coming on strong. The king must be an expert at brain politics to keep his hold of the realm. We will meet other characters in the next episodes as we continue our tour of the realm. I hope you will join me for the next episode. If you have questions or comments, please go to wgte.org slash brainpolitics. I am Dr. Rajiv Parinja. I am your host and producer. Our executive producer is Chris Pfeiffer. This is Brain Politics. WGTE. Voices around us. WGTE is supported in part by American Rescue Plan Act funds allocated by the City of Toledo and the Lucas County Commissioners and administered by the Arts Commission.